we could like to have our ushers come forward at this time as we take up our offering. You know, one of the things that the scriptures tell us is that God loves a cheerful giver. And uh, we tend to pull that out about this time in a service and, and remind people of that. But let's think about the reason that we have to be cheerful. We've just sung about a God who came into the world and took on flesh to purchase us from our sins. And the power of that purchase is so great that no one can pluck us from his hand. And this is some of what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, just the glorious truth of being ransomed by the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And when we get that, when we understand that, when we see that Paul says that since God gave Jesus to die for us, then how will he will not in him freely give us all things, then how much more freely ought we to be with the things that he's given us? We should be very free to give and to bless and to encourage and to donate money and gifts and time and resources because we have a God who continues to heap upon us blessing after blessing, resource after resource, gift after gift, grace after grace through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so it's on the basis of those truths that we open our checkbooks and our wallets and we give our time, we, we come to church, we make the sacrifice to be here because what we do now is so small a, a, a token of of uh, what God has already done for us in Christ. And so with those things in mind, pray with me as we take up our offering today. Oh God, we are humbled in awe of your love for us, displayed at Calvary, displayed in the ransoming death, the substitutionary death of Christ. God, it's like the hymn says, in my place condemned he stood. God, let that reality soak in this morning for your people. He was stricken for the, for the iniquities of your people, O oh God. You have loved a people from eternity. And all of us here this morning who are in Christ and all those who will come to Christ today or tomorrow or till the last one comes is a result of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God and the death of Jesus Christ to ransom sinners from their sins. What a glorious truth. What a beautiful redemption that we have. And God, we don't glory in it enough. So help us to love that truth. And in the light of that, in the, in the freedom of that reality, God, that we would lay our lives down, lay our money down, lay our time down. God, lay uh, our resources, our gifts, our talents down to serve you, to strengthen the church, to be the obedient bride that you have purchased. Lord, make us holy as a reflection of our love for you, God. Cause us to rejoice in the salvation that we have and to freely give because you so freely gave to purchase us. God, help us. Encourage us in these things, we pray. Give us power through the Spirit to behold these truths and, and change us inwardly by them, O oh God. We ask in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right. I noticed they didn't put a chair up here for me, so I guess I'll have to stand up this morning. Oh, I, I can grab that one. All right. Uh, so take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to start a new series. It, it will be a short series through uh, the book of First John. So if you would turn to First John, and we're actually going to begin in chapter 4. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because we're not going to preach straight through verse by verse as we so often do. But uh, what we're going to do is look at some of the themes that we find in the book of First John. First John really is... Uh, a very repetitive book, and, and there are several themes that just come up over and over again, 
And uh, so that's what we're going to kind of do is, is look at some of those key themes. And, and this morning, the, the theme is knowing. Uh, it, it is certainty. And I'll explain more about that in a second. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us, because God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I want to start out this morning with just by way of introduction, kind of giving you a little bit of the context. And the way that I'm going to do that is maybe a little bit different. I'm, I'm going to kind of give us a, a, a bit of a fictitious scenario that, that involves us. I, I think sometimes the best way for us to read and really get a hold of the truth of what we're reading in the Bible is to, is to try to put ourselves in, in the place of what's going on in, in that context. And so that's what I want to do here uh, this morning uh, a, a little bit. Uh, I want to make this personal because I think it'll help us to understand. So in this scenario, I'm going to use Jared sort of as a bad guy. I'm sorry, Jared. Jared's one of the best guys I know. So just remember, this is this is not a real scenario, but I think it will help us to understand what's going on in this letter. So I want you to imagine that Jared begins to teach things in, in Sunday school and his community group that just sound a little bit strange. You're just listening and you're thinking, that doesn't sound like that's that's right. He's saying things like, you know, Jesus really didn't have an actual physical body. Uh, the, the world that we live in is corrupted by sin. And there's no way, because the Son of God is 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 very God, he, he's the second member of the Trinity, there, there's no way uh, that God could come into this world and actually take on a, a physical body. God could not do that. God is holy, and he can't be corrupted or tainted by this physical world that, that we live in. Hopefully, uh, that would send a red flag up for, for many of you, hopefully all of you. Uh, but the next thing you know, Jared begins to get a following. Some of the people in his community group are saying, you know what, you're, you're right about this. And some of the people in his Sunday school class and and then they begin to try to convince other other people. So Jeffrey is talking to uh, Daniel and Jeff Dame, and he's trying to convince him this really is right. Jesus really didn't have a physical body. He he just came uh, in in spirit upon this man who who was named Jesus. Before long, 
the church is actually divided. This is no small group. This is, this is a large number of, of, of our people here in our church family. And, and uh, some of those who are, are following Jared, uh, they, they actually begin to stop meeting with us. And they begin meeting in other places and, and homes. And they kind of break away. Not only that, but they think people who believe that Jesus really had a physical body are just plain ignorant. They, they don't understand the truth. They don't have the knowledge that, that we have. People that think that, they're, they're just stupid. And the next thing you know, uh, you start to notice that, that this group is actually acting really differently than they did before. In fact, they're acting very sinfully. You see Jared out, and again, fictitious scenario, not, not real. Uh, but you see Jared out, and uh, you see him at the fair or at the restaurant, and you notice he's drunk as a skunk. He's hammered. What's going on here? Jared is, I cannot believe that he would be uh, getting drunk like this in public and so on. And uh, you've heard some of the other men who have left and, and become part of this group uh, that, that they've actually started up sinful relationships with, with other women who are not their, their wives. And when you confront them about this, they, you say, what's going on? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were following Christ. They, they say, well, listen, this physical world doesn't matter. Your body, what you do with your body doesn't really matter. Your soul, your spirit is what matters. You give that to God. And this, this world is going to be corrupted and our bodies are going to die. We're going to be separated from this world. So what you do in your body really, really doesn't matter. And I think part of the problem, too, is that people who are so close to us, people like Jared, who you've trusted to, to teach you and other people, sometimes people in your own family are beginning to say this. One of the things that would, would happen is that you would begin to have doubts. You begin to question, have I misread the Bible all of this time? I, th I thought sin was pretty clear that God didn't want us to do these things. Now they're saying that we can do this. And these are people that we trusted. These are, these are people that, that really seemed at one point at least to, to know Christ. And so they have uh, doubt begins to come in. These were some of the supposedly the best Christians that, that we knew. Well, that's kind of the context of what's going on here in the book of 1 John. It's something very similar to what I've just described to you. There are false teachers, and the false teachers are not necessarily from outside. These are people really who have come up from within the, the, their own church. Some of them probably were spiritual leaders. Perhaps they were pastors in, in the church or key leaders and they've begun to teach these very things that, that I've said. They, they were influenced by Greek philosophy, a, a word Gnosticism. Not that you need to know that, but that was kind of the ideology that this world is tainted and corrupted, that God could not become flesh, and that what you do in your physical body doesn't really matter. Uh, sort of a, a hyper-dualism, uh, if you care about those things. But, but what, what they really taught was, first, that Jesus wasn't really fully human. Uh, he, he, the Spirit of God descended onto this man who was a man, Jesus, at his baptism and, and then departed before his death because God certainly could not die. God could not be corrupted uh, in that way. And secondly, they, they taught that it doesn't matter how you live uh, because of your physical body is, is unimportant. And third, this is not clear altogether whether this was something they were actually teaching or just the way they were acting. Uh, they sort of minimized the importance of love. Uh, this idea of Gnosticism is the word knowledge, and the, the idea there is, and, and there were other religions like this, that, that we have sort of a secret knowledge. 
there's a knowledge that has been imparted to us. And, and if you have this knowledge, if you have this understanding, uh, then you're part of this elite club. And so probably that's some of what's going on is they're, they're distancing themselves from the people of this church. And they're saying, you, you are foolish. You're, you're too simple. You don't have this knowledge that we have. And so uh, perhaps that, that was what's going on there in terms of the issue of love. It's no wonder with this kind of scenario uh, going on that one of the key themes in the book of 1 John, which is a letter from the Apostle John to this church who is in a very similar situation to what I've just described. It's a letter and one of the key themes that John writes to them over and over and over again is that I want you to know. And when he says no, he, he's saying, I want you to have certainty. I want you to know that you have eternal life. I want you to know uh, that, that Jesus really did come in the flesh. I want you to know uh, that, that God does indeed love you. In fact, over 30 times, and, and you look, there's, there's uh, just five short chapters in, in the book of First John, really just three or four pages in your Bible. And, and over 30 times, he uses... 30 times he uses the word love or no. I want you to know this. I want you to have certainty. I want you to have confidence in this very thing. And so I think we can understand why that would be because these people would be doubting and, and questioning. And now, what, how does this apply to us? You say, we're not in this same situation. And, and the reality is that's, that is the case. But, but I think though, though there are some differences between the original context and where we are today, I think there are some things that are very similar. And one of those things is, is that all of us want to have certainty about these realities. All of us want to know, I think, that we are really believing the truth. Don't you want to know that as we're gathering and preaching and teaching and reading the Bible, don't you want to know that this is the truth, that you're not being led into, into some error? Don't you want to know that you really do have eternal life? That when you pass from this life into the, the next life, that you will go to be with God in heaven forever and ever? Don't you want to have certainty about that? Don't you want to know this morning what we're going to focus on? Don't you want to know that God really does love you, that you haven't been mistaken about that? I, I think though our context is different, that desire for certainty is altogether uh, similar. Well, what we really want to focus and the main point of what we're going to be looking at is that we can know that God loves us if we love one another. We can know that God loves us if we love one another. You see, uh, John gives them some what we might call test, diagnostic test to say, hey, th this is true of you if this is true of you. And so he can say to us, God loves you, and I want you to be certain. I want you to know that. But one of the ways that you can know that is if you love one another. And so you see that in, in verse 16, which I read a couple times. That's really the focus here this morning. Of course, love is one of those themes in the Gospel of John. Love is another word that's used over and over again. We're going to look at some of those passages, but primarily be here in, in chapter 4. Uh, and he says this, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It's 
the love of God that he has for us. We've come to know that and to believe it to be true, to have certainty about it. Well, how do you, ha- how do you know that, John? How do you have certainty? Look at verse 16 again. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. In other words, if we have love for one another, we can know and believe with certainty that God loves us. I think that's what he's teaching there. Now, you might be tempted to think, and I don't want you to misunderstand this, you might be tempted to think uh, that God just really likes love, that that's really important to him. And so when I love others, then God will love me. And that's kind of the point of this, the sermon this morning. You think, you know, well, God, God, love is so important to God. And so if I love others, then God will love me. But I'm not saying that if we love others, then God will love us. But what I am saying is that when we love others, we are acting in a way that is unmistakably characteristic of a person who's loved by God. Do you see the difference? I mean, that's a subtle difference, but it's an oh, so important, important, eternal difference. Uh, The the, the idea is not that I love God and because or I love others and because I love others, then God gives me his love. No, the, the idea in the book of first John is that God has loved me. And as a result, that is unmistakable. Every time God loves someone in this personal kind of way, they begin to love others. Do you see the big difference between the the two of those? The the context in 1 John is clear that we don't get God's love by doing anything, by how good we are or by how loving we are even. We don't merit God's love. We don't earn it by by loving people. And God looks down and says, that guy just loves everybody. I love him. That's not the way it works. God looks at us and we are sinners rebelling against God and God loves us. And as a result of us receiving that love, then we begin to echo that love in our lives. We begin to show it to, to others. The Bible is clear. First John is clear that we are sinners. In fact, chapter one, verse 10 says that if we say we're not sinners, that we're a liar, and that, that, that uh, we, we are lying and not telling the truth. We see in the, the book of 1 John that sin is an offense to God's law. In, in chapter 3, verse 4, it says that sin is lawlessness. So when we sin, we, we're flouting God's law. We're, we're saying, I don't care what you say, God. I don't care what you want me to do. This is what I'm going to do. Sin is lawlessness. And that lawlessness, that rejection of God's law is offensive to God. And it rightly brings God's anger and God's wrath upon us. That's very clear. The sin rightly brings God's anger and wrath, but rather than allow us to be the objects of his eternal wrath, what we see in 1 John is that God freely gave his son to die in our place and to be the sacrifice that would bear his righteous anger. So in 1 John 4.10, what we just read, it says this, in this is love, not that we loved God. See, this whole thing didn't get started with you loving God or you loving anybody. The whole thing got started not with not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation uh, is used a couple times here in First John. It just simply means this. It's a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. It takes the wrath of God on our behalf. And so that's how we've come to be loving people is because we were sinful people who were rebelling against God, who were breaking his law. And rather than 
And, and, and because of that, we were objects of his anger. His wrath was upon us. And rather than leave us in that condition, God loved us enough, enough even as his enemies, even though he had anger and wrath toward us, he loved us enough to give his son to be the sacrifice that, that would absolve his anger and wrath toward us and toward our sins. We have received love first before we ever give love. He loves us first and he shows it in such an unbelievably life-altering way that it transforms us into radically loving people. John Stott says this, he says, the love that is eternally in God, God is love, it starts with him. 1 John 4, 7 says that love is from God. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. The whole love thing starts with God, not with you. But it says the love that is eternally in God was historically manifested in Christ is to come to and is to come to fruition in us. In other words, we receive that love in Christ and then that love becomes part of who we are when that occurs. So we become recipients of God's love and his love takes root in our lives so that we then love others in the same way that we have been loved. Look, look very quickly, and let's just run through these verses in, in chapter 4 that, that I read, because I think I've tried to lay out this line of thinking, and I think now we can see that in, in this text. So begin at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, our love doesn't give us new birth. It's not what makes us spiritually new, uh, but it is an evidence that we have been born of God. Love starts with God. And so when you see a person who is expressing that kind of love, they're a person who's been born of God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's just the negative side of what he's just said. So when you see someone who loves like God, you can say that's someone who knows God who's been born of God. When you see someone who doesn't love, you can know absolutely without, without any wavering that person doesn't know God. And this is love. And this is the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So that's the expression of love that we come to receive. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that's how God displayed his love to us. That's how we receive it is through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's the motivation. He's, he's not saying that this happens, but he's just saying, here's the motivation. God loved us this way. And so if you've received Christ, if you've been the recipient of that love, well, then you ought to love others. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You, you haven't seen God. How do you know that you know God? Well, you know that you know God if you love the way that God loves. That's what he's saying here. That's, that's the test. That's, that's how you know. And so he, he goes on, our, our love for others is, is proof that God lives in us. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So our love is an expression of God's love 
in us. It didn't come first. It didn't start with us. It was his love and it was given to us in an unbelievable way. Now it is in us and it shows itself when we love others. This is why your love for others can give you a confident assurance. That's what he's writing for. He said, I want you to know that God loves you. But I'm not just going to tell you, hey, God loves you. Uh, you know, the, the way that our world expresses that. Yeah, God just loves everybody. No, he's saying that, that God has a, a unique love for some people. And the way that you know that you're a recipient of that love is when you see evidence of love in, in your life. Now, sometimes we're, we're very cheap in the way that we talk about love. We have a very low kind of bar about love, but let's think about the two facets of God's love because we've been recipients of this love. And, and so the kind of love that we're talking about expressing to each other uh, it, it is, is maybe a little bit different than what we typically think. Um, the first element, there, there are two facets to this. The first element is that God's love is a sacrificial love. God's love is a sacrificial love. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How do you know love? How do you know what love is? He's telling us, here's the definition of love. There are so many diff different ideas and so many different definitions of what love is. And, and many of us, love is just this emotional pull, this emotional attachment that we have to somebody. Say, I fell in love or I fell out of love. And, and for us, that's what love is. But no, he's saying, this is how we know what love is. How do we know what love is? Well, Christ laid down his life for us. Love, you see, is sacrificial love. It's not a love that just clicks like on Facebook or puts a happy little comment with hearts and say, oh, I love you. I hope things go well. Those are nice, but those are just pleasantries. Those, those are not necessarily expressions of true love. True love, the kind of love that God has for us, is a sacrificial love. He laid down his life for us. And because of that, he says in verse 16, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the kind of love we're talking about is not cheap. It's not easy. It's the kind of sacrificial love that takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy. Sometimes it takes doing things you don't want to do, but, but you do them because you love your brother. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's a rhetorical question. He's saying it doesn't abide in that person. So you see someone in need, you have the ability to help them, and you don't help them. He's saying God's love doesn't abide in a person like that. You see a brother in need, and you're unwilling to help them? No, no, no. The kind of love that God has is a, is a love that sees a need like that and says, I'm going to meet it. Well, it's going to be costly. Well, I'm going to meet it. How costly was God's love? He, he gave his only son, his only begotten son, to die in our place. It, it is a sacrificing kind of love. And that's what we are, are called to do. It's a sacrificial love. Secondly, not only is it a, a sacrificial uh, kind of love, but it's God's love is the kind of love that, that loves people, even the people, I should say, who, who wrong us. God's love is the kind of love that loves even the people who wrong us. And again, we see this in, what, in the gospel. We see this in the fact that, that though God was angry with us, 
He didn't allow that anger to keep him at a distance. Instead, he drew near to us and he did what was necessary in giving his son to draw us to himself so that our relationship could be restored to him. Verse 10 of this very chapter says that he gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Too often our love is one that stops at the moment anyone crosses us. Uh, anytime someone is different from us or, or there's just something we don't like about them, that's, that's the extent of our love. Sure, oh, well, I could love my family. I, I could love uh, people in my community that kind of see things the way that I see and that, that, that don't rub me wrongly. Uh, but you can know that God loves you not when you love your children and family, but when you love those who the world would never love. That's when you can know. That's when you can have confidence. When you see that kind of love, that's when you can know God loves me. Uh, because that's the kind of love that God has for others. It's the kind of love that loves people even sometimes who hurt us or use us or who are unkind to us, the people who are different from us, different politically, different personalities, different ways of seeing things, different ages, that kind of love. When you see someone loving in that way, you can say, that looks like someone who's been born of God because people like that, they don't, they don't typically get along. I mean, they're just like oil and water. They, they, are, they are total opposites. That is the love of God. You know, in, in our world, people love those who love them. They love those who get along with them. They love those who are easy to love. But the kind of love that we are to have, the kind of love that God has, is to love those who are unlovable. That's what God has done for us. What does the world do with people like that? People who use us and hurt us and are unkind to us, different than us? different personalities. What, what does the world do to people like that? Well, I'm going to say this, and, and I think you're going to think, well, that, that's extreme, and I'm going to explain what I mean. But the world kills them. The world kills them. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message, 1 John 3, 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So don't be like that. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And you say, well, I'm not in any danger of that, okay? Uh, I think I do have some people that I really don't like. Maybe I even hate them. I don't, I don't know, but, but I'm not going to murder anybody, so I, I think I'm pretty good. Well, well, let's look a little deeper here because I, I don't think he's just saying here uh, that, that this is actual murder, that we should just like, okay, don't murder anybody and you're okay. It's a pretty low bar right? Uh, I think he's calling us to something more than that. We know that Jesus taught that not only uh, that, that murder, uh, or let me back up, let me say it this way, that, that hatred is really the seed form of murder. Uh, when you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, uh, that, that really is uh, in seed form the kind of, kind of sin that leads to, to murder. And so Jesus says uh, that, that you're guilty of breaking that, that commandment. And John picks up on that in chapter 3. If you jump to verse 15, it says this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Okay, so when he says don't be like Cain, I don't think we can just wash our hands and say, Whoa, okay, well, I'm not as bad as Cain. I'm not going to kill anybody. No, no, no. If you have hatred in your heart for those people, you're already guilty of that. Everyone who hates his brother is a, a murderer. I recently heard someone say something very profound. And he said this, whenever we hate, 
There is a death that occurs. There is a death that occurs. It may not be a physical death, but it is the death really of that relationship. That's why I ask you, what do people in the world do when, when, when they hate? And I said, they, they kill, right? We, we kill. And, and I think what I'm trying to drive at is, well, what do we do? We try to end that relationship. We try to put it to death. Sure, we, we may not physically take anyone out of the world. We, we may not physically kill them, but we do try to take them out of our world. We try to rid our world of that person. I don't want to be around that person anymore. I don't want to talk to that person anymore. I'm going to distance myself. I'm getting away from them. In a sense, there is a death that occurs. It may be the death of the relationship. Think about it. How many marriages have been executed because of hatred? Right? I just can't deal. I hate this man. I hate this woman. I want to get away from them. And we put to death that relationship. How, how often have fr- friendships come to an end because we allow hatred to set up in our hearts rather than, than forgiveness and, and love? The relationship dies. How often do people leave church families because they get angry about something and they decide rather uh, they decide to choose the path of hatred rather than of love? and forgiveness. You can see the similarities between hatred and murder. There is a connection. I'm going to get rid of you. And I may not, I may not kill you. I may not get rid of you in the ultimate kind of sense because I don't want to go to jail and I don't want to face the consequences, but I'm getting my world. I'm getting you out of my world. I want to be rid of you. John is exactly right. Whoever hates is a murderer. Hatred, I think, is much more common than, than we tend to think. Most people don't want to admit to hating anyone. When I talk to people, it's like, well, I don't really hate anyone. But what else do you call it when you have people that the mention of their name just brings thoughts of anger and desire to harm them, either verbally or even physically sometimes? I want to give them a piece of my mind, or I would really, if I saw him right now, I'd punch him in the face, right? How often, uh, what else do you describe that as? What do you call it? when there are people that you refuse to just simply be around them, when you're willing to go to painful lengths just to free yourself from any connection with them, what do you call that if that isn't hatred? God's love extends to those who are enemies. That's the kind of love that we are to have. I recently saw what I think is an example of this, a powerful example of the kind of love that God gives to people the kind of love that we experience and that frees us from hatred and and allows us to display radical love to others. You may have seen this in in the news. There was the police officer, the the female police officer in Dallas, Amber Geiger. Um, All the details, I I don't know all the details, but apparently she went into the wrong apartment. She went to the wrong floor uh, in her apartment complex and went in. She thought it was her apartment. Uh, I I think there may have been um, some substance uh, that, that caused her not to be thinking rightly. Uh, don't know all the details, but she went into the apartment and there was a man there who she assumed was in her apartment. She, had, she was off duty, uh, but she had her, her gun and she drew her gun and shot this man and, and killed him. She was tried rightly uh, and convicted. And at the sentence, sentencing phase of that, the, the man's brother, the man was named Botham Jean, and, and his brother was named Brant. Uh, Brant Jean 
got up on, on the stand, and you've seen this before in, in trials where people in, in the sentencing phase are, are allowed to speak and say, you took everything from me. You destroyed our family. You hurt us. I hope you rot in jail. All those kind of things that people say. And, and understandably, in, in many respects, I think many of us would be in that, that same boat. But this is what Brant Jean said, a, a man who clearly seems to have been impacted by the love of God He said this, I forgive you. If you go to God, he will forgive you. I'm not speaking for anyone else, anyone in my family, but I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. That's exactly what both of them would want. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing. Both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish any bad on you. He then asked the judge, some of you saw this, he asked the judge if he had permission to to hug Amber Geiger, and that's exactly what he did. What a radical display. Kind of how many people would, would be able to do that? I don't I don't think anybody in the world would be able to do that. I don't think anybody who didn't know the liberating, self-sacrificing love that God has for us would be able to do that. It, it has to be someone who's got that person has God's love in his heart. And you can know he's been born of God. After the, the sentencing phase, Amber Geiger asked the judge, and there was another compelling video, but she asked the judge for a Bible, and the judge went to her chamber. She was a believer and, and got a, a Bible. Amber Geiger was sentenced and was heading off to prison, and she took a Bible with her, having seen this display of love t- toward her. It compelled her to ask for a Bible, and we, we don't know. I don't know the details but perhaps this act of love will be the thing that leads her to Christ. Consider again this morning, do you know God's love? Verse 16 again, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. We know it. We, we believe that God really does love us. How do we know that? God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God. And, and God abides in him. That, that statement is clear. We know God loves us because we love. Do you have confidence? Do you have that confidence this morning? Do you know that God loves us? Don't, don't answer from the Bible Belt mentality that says God loves everyone. What I'm asking you is not whether God loves all people. What I'm asking you is have you experienced the life-altering, transformative love of God that now resides in you and has made you a person of radical, self-sacrificing love? Do you know that love? There's a double-edged sword to what John is writing. He's writing so that this church who's confused about all these people who have just left and are saying all kinds of weird things, that he's writing so that they will have confidence. But there's a double-edged that he's also writing to clearly show that these people who are acting in this unloving way, who are believing this error, who are not practicing righteousness, he's writing so that it would be clear that they, as he says uh, in chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not of us that they are not of God. God's love doesn't abide in them. And I wonder this morning for you, 
Are you confident that God loves you? Does God's love abide in you? Has it transformed you from a person of hate and anger, a person who who ends relationships, who, who cuts people off, into a person who loves even those who the world would, would not love? Are, are you a person who has so experienced the radical love of Jesus that you love people who are unlovable to the world? Or is your life marked by murder? Oh, I, I'm not a murderer, but what I'm talking about, relationships that you have killed by your hatred. How long is that list of deaths, by the way? It only takes one to, to demonstrate the, your lack of love. But, but for some of you, perhaps the, the list is quite long of people that you have just cut off in anger and hatred. Today, you can know the love of, of Christ. I, I want you to know the love of Christ. I'm not here trying to get you to doubt that. Uh, what I want you to do is, is see that uh, if you embrace Jesus Christ, you can be certain that, that God does love you. Again, some of you will be tempted to hear this sermon and think, look, I want God's love, so I'm going to start being a more loving person. I'm going to try to mend that broken relationship. There are people for whom I have been harboring some hatred, and I need to get that resolved. All of those would be good things. But, but what I want you to see this morning is that you might be getting it backwards. Your, your reasoning might be flawed. The, the point is that we is that the way you will become a sacrificing, radically loving person is only if you have first experienced that from God. So don't this morning think, I'm going to go out of here, I'm going to really start trying to be a more loving person. No, no, no. If, you, if you're struggling with this, if you recognize I'm not a loving person, what you need to do is experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the way that you do that is by coming and confessing your faith in Jesus Christ and believing in him and recognizing that what Jesus did on the cross was God's sacrifice of love for me. And when you know that, and when you believe it, it will transform you every single time. So much so that that when it happens, you will become a loving person. If you're already a believer this morning and you know the love of God, perhaps uh, you you have seen that your actions are somewhat out of step with the, the love of God. We're going to observe the Lord's table this morning, and I'd go ahead and invite our our ushers to come forward uh, to distribute this. And what I hope for in this time uh, is that as we observe the Lord's table and we remember the death of Christ on our behalf, that those of us who have experienced God's, God's love, that, that would be renewed in our mind. That we would once again have it come to our mind just how clearly, how strongly, how unbelievable God's love is for us. And that we would once again begin begin to be transformed into people of love.